What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Alex Bush. Alex, thank you for being here, dude. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. It's my pleasure. Um, So for the listeners that don't know, you're somebody I have been working with for, I believe we just passed the six-month mark. I've learned so much from you, and I've had you on the show before, but it's been since 2020, I believe. I believe it's been about a year okay. and a half since you were on last. So for the listener that might not know, can you just give us a brief background on who you are and what you're up to right now? Certainly. Um, so I am a, a co-owner of Physique Development. We are working with individuals uh, across the board. So lifestyle and, and contest prep clients. We've been in the online space for the last nine years, which is a, a crazy thing to say that we're like almost on that decade marker for online coaching, which is so wild. Um, but even digging further into my my background as a whole, I played college baseball and I've competed in, in men's physique. And um, I work with a majority of individuals that are going to be bikini athletes, figure and, and wellness athletes for myself specifically. But like I said, we work with a, a very large demographic. And um, within today's topic, it, this aligns abundantly well with just the work that I do on a day-to-day basis. And I look forward to um, everybody getting to enjoy um, I guess other stuff to tell about me is that I have a, an incredible wife. Her name is Sue. We have two dogs. Um, they are Tucker and Gus. We have two labs. Tucker is a yellow lab. He's almost two. And then Gus is a white lab and he is uh, six. I, we don't necessarily know. The vet wants to tell us he's younger, but we're pretty sure that he's six. But that's the, the general gist of the important stuff about me. <laughs> I love it. Always important to include the dogs in there as well. Always. Um, before we get into our topic, what do you think got you into the online space so early? Because you said nine years ago. Yeah. Um, so what got me into the online space, Austin and I were um, in college. And so what we were doing at the time was making YouTube videos. And so we were developing an audience of individuals who were actually physique development at the time was called campus physique. And it was really just us as college students figuring out how we could track our macros, as well as uh, train consistently. And we would train at crazy times of night. And that was like one thing that many people gravitated towards is that we worked a bunch like we did. Uh, we worked for an inflatable company. And so we would do inflatables from like five o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock in the... Uh, no, like eight o'clock in the morning. And then we would go and, and break them down. But in between those times, we'd be going to class and those different factors. And so people really... Um, got in line with the hustle and bustle of what our life was and, and resonated with like, man, these, these guys are just making it work. And it was very motivational to a lot of people, um, to see like the, the 24 seven grind of it all to get training sessions in at 10 o'clock at night. And then to be, you know, now being, uh, closer to 30 than I am 20 in that, I don't think I could ever do that now. I can't imagine living the life that we did when we were 19 and and 20. Um, But in that, that was kind of what people gravitated towards. And so from there and making those YouTube videos, we were selling training programs on Facebook. And so what we would do was... um, basically, because that's how we generated money to even have the cameras to be able to record for YouTube. And so what we were doing is we would just do what is now DM outreach on Instagram, but we were doing it through Facebook Messenger at the time uh, because Instagram wasn't that 
it wasn't really a right. thing, you know, super at that point. It was still like the the white and the blue branding and it was like really blocky and it wasn't really what it was just like for photographers at that point for the most part, like right. 2012, 13. And so um in that we were uh just reaching out to people and selling programs for whatever they would uh buy it for. Like I would start at 15 bucks, then sometimes I would get arrogant and go to 20 bucks and sometimes $25. That was kind of how we went about and made, um, cause like, I remember that first camera that, um, I had my, my baseball scholarship. So then I was taking that little bit of money that I was getting from that and kind of utilizing as little of it for food as I could. So I was taking a small percentage of that and then these training programs. And so I, after, I don't know, I don't know how long it was, but I had saved the $700 that was necessary for me to get the camera that I wanted. And so that was like the first, you know, big thing. Um, and so that was how we started was the training programs on Facebook. And then from there, as we got, uh, the precision nutrition, uh, certifications from a nutritional perspective, and we were both finishing our degree work for exercise science, we just kind of organically went into, uh, training clients at that time. And both of us had worked in person already at that point. Austin had had a little bit more abundance of in-person training. I had worked in the, um, strength conditioning realm for the college that I was attending. And so that was kind of how things rolled. And I was able to accrue a little bit of clients from the, the, uh, athletes that I was working with in the strength conditioning realm that were moving on. And so that was kind of my initial base was the people that I worked with in person that were like, okay, I really do trust you of, of what you've taught me over the past year or two years that I had been working with them. And then that was like the initial base of, of clientele. So yeah, long story short there, there's probably so much more to share, but that's the, the general base of, of how things got going in 2013, I guess it was 2013 and 2014 timeframe. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It almost sounds like you guys were just quicker to like, you identified it as something you wanted to do and you took action. Like, yeah. I know for me in like 2012, Corey Gregory was a dude that had a huge influence where like every day, mm -hmm. this is before I even had Instagram, but I would like screenshot his workouts. He would post on his Twitter and like, that's what I would do every day. Yeah. And I was like, this is so cool. This dude just like creates content online. And like, I don't know really like, what he does, but it's so cool. I want to do it someday. Um, but I didn't start really like putting shit out there until like 2016. So it's, yeah. it's just always interesting to hear people's backstories a bit. Um, but to get into it, man, topic of the day is really around building glutes. So as you mentioned, um, you work with a good amount of competitors where this is one of the primary focuses. I personally know I've been building some cakes since we've been working together. Yeah, <laughs> um, this is true. I, this is true. Uh, I honestly, I think that is where I have seen the most growth. Of course, we don't like focus on that and measure amount with yeah. progress pictures or anything like that. But um, that's one of the main reasons I want to have you on here because again, with our mm -hmm. audience as well, this is definitely something that we put a major focus on and something that I get a lot of questions about as well. So I wanted to kick this off by asking you, are there a few most common mistakes you see people that are trying but struggling to build glutes are making? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, so common mistakes I would see is lack of, of focus on execution. Um, individuals just looking at exercises as if they are destinations between point A and, and point B, uh, things like the barbell back squat, things like the Romanian deadlift, conventional deadlift, um, split squats, uh, the leg press. There's a lot of different movements that we're going to utilize to put on quality glute tissue that many people are just kind of like, okay, I'm in this piece of equipment. I'm, or I'm already going to put on glute tissue. And that's just simply not the case where we can manipulate the setup of a lot of these exercises to allow for the individual to maximize their glute growth or their glute bias in these different movements. And so that's one big, big one where people are just like, okay, this exercise trains my glutes. And it's like, well, if you execute it properly, yes, it does. But oftentimes something like a, a barbell glute bridge or a barbell hip thrust, however you want to label it, could turn into a quad based and like lumbar spine movement if done improperly. Now you're going to get glute, like it's not like the glutes are not working at all, but they're also not going to be the main driver or being biased within the, the tissue or the exercise. So that is, is one thing there that I would, I would say. The other thing is programming excessive levels of volume where they're like, okay, I'm going to train glutes four days a week. I'm not worried about any other muscle group. I'm just going to train glutes and they're not giving themselves adequate time to recover. They're not nourishing their, their body. So that's going to be kind of like a, a two a and a two B situation where they're not getting enough calories in place to actually grow. They're like, well, I want my glutes to grow, but I also want to lose body fat. And so they're in this chronic state of like, I'm going to push volume super high to put on this glute tissue, but I'm also going to keep my calories super low. Cause I want to be as lean as possible and look like the uh, girl that I love on or guy that I love on social media or whatever. Um, so those would be kind of the, the three main pillars of like poor exercise execution, um, excess levels of, of volume or frequency, and then not enough nutrients being in place for them to actually grow. Okay, absolutely. And I think that's such a good point you made there at the end, especially where it's like, hey, I see this person on Instagram, they have great glutes, but they're also super lean. So I need to focus on getting lean and trying to build great glutes at the same time, where it's probably like, hey, your most efficient route to get there is focus on eating more, add that glute tissue that we should refer to first, and then we can go through the process of eating it later, but it's going to take some time to focus on building. I love that. I agree. I see the same thing a lot. So when we're talking about glute training, what are the primary muscles of the glute? Can you just give us a quick overview of that? Absolutely. So you're going to have the, the two ones that you're going to visually see are going to be the, the glute max, which is your, your biggest piece of, of the, the glute as a whole. And then you're going to have the glute me. These two are going to be the two that you really see. And the glute meat is going to provide you with kind of the, the shelf appearance to the, to the glute. If you feel like you're not having, um, like the, the density to your, your hips, if you will, um, that's going to be the glute mead specifically. And then the, the pop or the, um, yeah, the pop to the glute would be kind of the glute max. And you've got some 
kind of hidden pieces within the glute minimus as well, where you're going to have that being trained through a plethora of movements, but not being your primary mover as a whole. And then you've got this little, you've got other pieces, but another one that's going to be kind of um, helpful to talk about today is going to be the piriformis, which is a a really small uh, muscle that a lot of people have some issues with because of their exercise selection, how they perform some of the movements. And this is a, a tissue that gets far too much love and causes a lot of strain and does cause sensation within they're like oh i feel in the um, abduction uh, machine i feel a lot of of tension through my glutes but it's really that piriformis getting very much so inflamed and it's just that tissue being almost screaming of like hey i've got enough love here like i don't need any more and in the mind is more of like oh i'm getting a lot of glute tension through this where in reality it's just the the piriformis being like i don't i don't need this like this is not good okay so is that most often coming from like an overemphasis on induction work where it is like hey we're chasing that sensation a lot or does that make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's going to be part of it, or like the um, when individuals are are consistently banding at the knee and doing like the the side lunges, if you will, that's going to get inflamed there. Or if someone is is chronically externally rotating at the hip when they're um, performing a sumo deadlift, that's going to be another aspect in which that tissue can become uh, very inflamed and and um, over fatigued in those different factors. And so it's it's a very common out like a commonality for people to feel this immense amount of tension within that tissue and think like, Oh, I'm getting my glutes within this where in reality, the glute tissue is not going through an accurate range of motion or much range of motion or, or much tension being placed on it. It's being displaced on other tissues surrounding it, um, depending on the movement that you selected. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And I know one of the big topics that you'll see a lot on Instagram lately is like, are sumo deadlifts good or not so good for building glutes? And that somewhat speaks to that as well. Yeah. And it depends on the setup. I think that we have a really good video on our YouTube, um, that maybe you could link in the the show notes, um, that it's Sue and Austin going over it and positioning wise, it's extremely helpful. The main thing is treating it as more of like a, almost a wide stance squat rather than getting as, as spread out as possible and, and abducting at the hip as much as possible to get as close to you can as the, to the floor. Cause I feel like that was kind of the, the narrative that was pushed forward is that from a powerlifting perspective to decrease the range of motion as much as possible. I understand that to uh, be able to increase the load and not have to take it as far. I get that. That that's not really what I'm, I'm speaking to. We're not working with, with power lifters specifically in that realm. Uh, I'm more so speaking to the individual who is wanting to have the greatest degree of hypertrophy on the glutes. And so we want to take it through a greater range of motion. That's going to create the most tension on the tissue that we're wanting to train optimally. That makes complete sense. So then when we're digging into these different muscles of the glutes, when it comes to building great glutes, are there a few primary muscle groups within the glute that you're focusing on here, or is it kind of even split between everything you just talked about? So I'm going to have a greater bias towards the the glute max being the, the large emphasis. And so we're going to be getting really good at just hip hinging in general, and then taking the 
glutes through a full range of motion and getting through hip flexion and hip extension and being very good at that. Um, so things like the, the RDL is a, a very important movement as you have you know seen within my programming, um, just for, for adequate, like outside of wanting to put on crazy glute tissue, it's very important for individuals who are sitting at their desk abundantly, which is a lot of us, especially people working from home now and, and those different factors, we have to train the glutes well just for proper posture as well as pelvic stability. Um, and it just get like, it, it's a very important piece to making the physique look whole. Uh, we've seen individuals with, with flat glutes, men more specifically than, than females and they're like their pants just go, it's just a straight line from their waist to their, their ankle. And it's a really odd right. look, but it's common. And so that is, you know, lack of training and those different factors. I'm getting off on a side tangent. Um, but yeah, RDLs being big and things that are going to get the, the glutes into the fully shortened position. And just for the listeners who, who may not be familiar with lengthened and, and shortened positioning, the shortened position is just going to be getting the insertion and the origin of the tissue um, of the glute max as close together as possible. And then you have the, the opposite of that being the lengthened position, and that's going to be the furthest uh, apart. And so things like the, the RDL, things like a glute-focused leg press, potentially a, a back squat or a hack squat could be utilized in that facet as well. Lunges are a, a favorite of mine in that realm, uh, split squats, those different things from a, a lengthened position standpoint. Um, and then like a glute bridge or a 45 degree hip extension or kickback variations being options to get the glutes, you know, fully shortened as well. Okay, absolutely. And so then when we're looking at, and I think you already touched on this pretty well, but when we're looking at how to quote unquote, best line things up to put these muscles under significant tension, it sounds like essentially when we're looking at the glute max that we're probably going to be focusing on medium deadlift or deadlift variation probably would be relatively narrow and potentially same thing goes for like a squat a lunge a split squat where essentially like your knee and foot are in alignment with the pelvis is that pretty accurate or am i off base there yeah I, I think that um like positioning wise you're going to like for instance if we look at the rdl and we have two options here where we have more of a, a bent knee option and then we have a stiff knee option. So the bent knee is going to allow for us to get into a greater degree of, of hip uh, flexion and being able to drive the hips back further while allowing for those glutes to fully lengthen more. If we stay in a more stiff knee state, we're not going to be able to hip hinge as greatly because we're going to be limited by the mobility of that of the hamstring as well as the the gastroc causing a little bit of strain through that knee as well. So you're going to be limited by overall mobility, which is going to put a greater emphasis on the hamstrings because we're not in as much of a hip flex state or able to. Put push the hips back as far. And so when we're looking at the bent knee option, that's going to be a greater bias towards the glutes because of that greater hip hinging effect. And then when we look at the stiff knee, we're going to have a greater bias towards the hamstrings specifically. Now, when we talk on bias, I'm going to probably say this 15 times in this 
um, in this podcast, but when we talk about bias, it's not that all the other tissue, it's not like a light switch of like, okay, we talk about bias to the glutes. Now the hamstrings are off. That light switch is off. It's kind of more of a, a dimmer and a, and a, and a brighter where if we have that bias towards glutes, it's getting brighter with the, the glutes or a greater bias, but it's not like the, the lights for the, the hamstrings are, are totally off. Um, so that's a good way of, of thinking about it. Um, and then like in a split squat variation or a lunge variation, you're focusing much more on the, the hip hinge and allowing for the glutes to lengthen relative to creating more knee flexion as you would be if it was like more quad biased. And again, it's, it's not a matter of like no knee flexion and only hip hinging. It's a, it's a greater balance towards the hip hinging relative to the knee flexion that's wanting to be created. So we have the bias towards the glutes themselves. Absolutely. And then for like a practical takeaway for the listeners, an example of that would probably be something like, okay, if we're going to split squat and bias glutes more, really the emphasis is on pushing your hips back more. Your rib cage will probably come a lot closer to your thigh. Whereas if we wanted to make more quad bias, you'd probably be more right. And our focus is probably more on driving the knee forward. Is that pretty accurate? Yes, that is, that is extremely accurate. That's exactly what uh, you'd want to do in terms of whatever you were wanting to bias on that front for sure. Cool. Cool. So then when we're choosing like say an RDL or a glute focused leg press, or even like a glute focused back squat, for example, when we're choosing our stance, how do we know like how wide or narrow should our stance be? Toes pointed straight forward, toes out. Um, any thoughts on question? Good question. Um, so when we think about the, the, the back squat specifically, we're thinking about what we talked about within the, the hip hinge. So the stance itself is going to be less relative to being more narrow or wider and more of what's comfortable for us to hip hinge adequately as, as well as uh, deprioritizing the amount of knee flexion that's being created. Now, it's not that like the, the heel wedge for instance, if we were to be biasing quads, we would want the wedges to be in place to drive those knees forward and create a greater degree of, of knee flexion. But it's not as if, like if you were to use the wedges, that you can't bias glutes any longer. You're still breaking at the hips more and prioritizing that shift relative to the positioning of your body more so. So I hope that makes sense because the, the positioning is not that it needs to be this like wide stance, low bar positioning to like target glutes. Now, does that positioning potentially allow for you to have a greater ability to hip hinge almost as if it's a, like a good morning potentially for the individual's mechanics and like how their structure works? Like that very well could be true, but for the greater majority of individuals, and also, I guess the other thing with the squat is that you're not wanting to get too caught up in like getting past parallel because when we're, we're prioritizing the, the hip hinge relative to the knee flexion, we may not get to, you know, past the hip crease, uh, or like past the, the knee in terms of a perfect 90 degree squat. And that's okay because we have a, a bias or a goal within the exercise rather than it being the destination that we talked about of being like point A to point B. Um, so that would be kind of the thought process going into the back squat. It's going to be so individual in terms of like the limb lengths of their, their legs as, as well as uh, the length of their torso, the positioning of the bar on their back. Those different factors are important to take into consideration as you're um, kind of constructing what the best execution for that back squat is for what you're wanting to accomplish. Does, does that, you think that 
kind of outlines things well enough or do, like would there be a follow-up question yeah. to that for the listeners i think that makes sense so basically what you're saying is it's not necessarily hey your stance needs to be exactly this because we're biasing clues but rather what you should look at as a listener is what allows you to achieve the most hip flexion well somewhat basically bend the most or push your hips back the most I don't know if that's necessarily yes. accurate without While keeping the spine neutral and yeah. Okay. Okay. And that'll vary a lot. Some people it'll be a little bit wider. Some people it might be a little bit narrower. So it's probably something for you to play with and see what feels the most natural. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. yeah. And I would like a general rule of thumb would be that the, the foot stance would be just shoulder width apart to start there and see what you can manage on that front, taking video and then trying other things too, because it, that's the other thing is as we talk about this, it's going to be so individual within the individual's mechanics and, and how they're structured that you're going to have to try different things to see what aligns for the individual the best. Um, as much as we would love for this to be something where it's like, here's the golden standard and 99% and of you can go out and do this. It's just, that's not how the body functions or how we're all built. And so it's going to be more individual than what it is of like being able to, to have a, a golden standard. Um, and then pertaining to the leg press. So this is going to be uh, relative to actually some of the, the research that N1 Education has been doing at, of the last really two years. And so previously, I taught the leg press in a more... Um, like neutral to potentially a little bit of a wider stance to greater bias the glutes. Um, and since then, I've actually changed this and it has been a higher foot placement, which is what they've found from some of the research that they've completed. And it's been more of a narrow stance, which makes sense when we look at the insertion point being for the majority of individuals, almost kind of on the outside of that femur, like, uh, I guess it would be maybe like 20% down the, the leg and then kind of almost on the outside. So you're, you're thinking of the, the glute max fibers almost running like a 45 degree angle and almost wrapping around. So you're thinking of your angle of your feet to be lined up in that fashion to where those fibers can get as or the, the insertion in the origin can get as far away from one another as possible, which creates that positioning and a very high degree of, of hip flexion as you find that bottom positioning. Now, it may feel like a very short range of motion as you're completing it, but it is something in which you'll be able to create much greater tension with the glutes as well as handle a, a great degree of load um, within that. And so then kind of coming to the question of how do you program them like uh, of when to utilize them it was that another part of the the question as a whole um it was not but i really like that as our next stepping point so let's go ahead and begin <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's what my mind was running to um, like how to program them necessarily is going to be dependent on the spinal loading and the fatigue onset so for example, if I had like the first exercise be a, a barbell RDL or like a trap bar RDL emphasizing the glutes, but I still wanted more glute emphasis as my second exercise too, the likelihood that I would follow that because that's a very spinal loading, my lumbar, your, your lumbar is, is getting some fatigue from that. You're bracing very hard um, within that exercise at the second exercise, provided that the uh, athlete has the equipment available to them, the leg press would be a fantastic option because you're, you're still getting that glute work, but you're not loading the spine again. So they're 
their ability to accumulate quality volume is going to be much higher and their ability to still have high load in that exercise is going to be much higher relative to the individual. Now, a lot of us were, have been you know, coming out of, of training at home and maybe you only had a barbell there. So it was, you know, you didn't have a leg press available to you. You didn't have a hack squat available to you. So you had to, to accumulate greater glute volume, had to go with the barbell back squat. And so we have to be very cognizant that we're going to have different numbers if we were to squat first, or if we were to RDL first, because the fatigue ratio that you're going to experience from that first exercise is going to inhibit the maximal strength that you would have in that second exercise. So you want to think of it in that context as a whole. Um, and kind of how you're placing the exercises. And it, that's a, you know, probably a whole other topic of the emphasis within exercise selection and order, um, being a, a very large priority. Absolutely. Okay. So basically what you're saying there is you want to consider the amount of spinal loading, especially when it comes to like a uh, lengthened overload, glute emphasis movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of those are going to come with a high degree of spinal loading. Like for the example, you use was the Romanian deadlift, right? And for the listener understanding that movements that load the spine heavily are typically just inherently going to be a little bit more fatiguing. And like to what you alluded to before, where it's like, Hey, we're just trying to do more glutes, more glutes, more glutes. Um, but we need to make sure we can actually recover from that. Then we need to be smart with like how much we're loading our spine and our glute training to also make sure that's something we can recover from and probably try to use a relatively limited dose. Not like they're something we need to be scared of or avoid, but we need to be smart with the dose of movements to lower spine. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, from a volume perspective, really just kind of playing around with what's going to be best for you potentially. Uh, what I would say is like a, um, you could go with maybe a 75 to 25 uh, percent split of like lengthen to mid range work that you're doing from a set perspective to the 25% being shortened potentially, and then kind of navigating your way to maybe 50, 50, seeing how you feel with that kind of volume, uh, metric as a whole and utilizing that as kind of a, a rule of thumb of, of how your recovery is, as well as what's your progress within the exercise selection. But, um, one thing that I try to do within every training session, if possible, now it's not like if you're doing like a full upper body session, you're not going to be able to hit the length and mid and shortened of every single upper body muscle group. That's just not feasible. And so you're going to have to have right. some form of bias within that upper body session, whether it be chest or lat or something along those lines. So within now within, uh, my field of work, it makes it easy because a majority of the individuals I'm working with are needing glute tissue, or it needs to be a greater bias. So all of those sessions will probably be able to take them through a lengthened glute, a mid range glute emphasis type exercise, and then a, a shortened emphasis, you know, throughout the entirety of the session, because that's our, our main goal, but it's going to be dependent on, you know, what the goal is that you have when you're programming properly for these exercise selections. Okay, absolutely. So, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask is, is if there was kind of a specific ratio of lengthen to shorten overload mm -hmm. movements for the glutes. So to make this practical, can you kind of talk us through like the 75, 25 more lengthen and mid range to shorten ratio, like in context of a lower body day, kind of just like what that would look like. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So 
and to, to have greater specificity to this, you're going to have in like growth phases or times of a caloric surplus or maintenance, you're going to have a greater bias of lengthened work relative to shortened base work. Um, whereas in a deficit, especially thinking of, of my clients from a contest prep perspective, we're going to slowly bring down the lengthened work just because the recoverability from that type of work, that type of, of, um, poundage on their, their physique, the, the spinal loading, all those different factors. So this is going to vary depending on the phase that you're in. So for example, if, if you are in that surplus window, the 75, 25 breakdown is a really nice kind of place to reside within that. Maybe you have something along the lines of like a, um, what we talked about earlier of the bent knee RDL as your first glute focus exercise, three to four sets there. And then you go in and you have the next exercise be that leg press where you're lengthening the glute max um, as a whole. So you're, you've got two really great exercises on that front. And then as you get into the later portion of the session, you may do something for the glute med. So maybe a glute med kickback the 45 degree hip extension. And then at that point, you've probably taxed your glutes quite a bit. Like those are four really good exercises for you to take through a full range of motion. Could you get a greater density of volume? Maybe, but if you're executing properly, you're uh, within a, a high level of, of RIR, RPE, um, potentially taking sets to failure if that's within your, your realm of, of expertise on that front. Um, that would be a really good, you know, four exercises to get a lot, lot of bang for your buck um, you know, for the, the glutes as a whole. And then you'd be kind of filling in the gaps within potentially some quad work and some hamstring work to go alongside those exercises as well. Okay. And we're very much speaking in generalities here because of course, yes, all this of course. that's important for the listener to understand. Yeah. Um, I would ask typically, would you say if we're doing more than like two length and overload movements and two movements that are in a bias or shoulder position more, if we're doing more than that, would you say typically it's probably just like excess and maybe we benefit more from cutting back? I and mean, again, this is all generalities. Right. Within a training it, it, session. Yeah, I would say that potentially with a more advanced individual, a third lengthened exercise could work, but that's going to be a lot. And so something that I, in a context, maybe where I would go a third lengthened exercise would be something that's lengthening the glute med, which would be like a modified curtsy lunge that we teach. Uh, that's really the only exercise that I'm familiar with that's training that glute med through the, the, um, lengthened position as, as much as we can. Um, so that would be an option on that front. It, but the thing to pay attention to, if you're doing three lengthened emphasis exercises that you're taking to an RIR of one to two, or even to a zero potentially with maybe one or two of those sets at that point, that third lengthened exercise, do not expect this to be like, if you were to do this in a previous phase as one of your first exercises, if you were to thereafter do it as your third exercise, to think that the numbers that you hit when you did it previously are going to be the same. That's not how it's going to work. The fatigue ratio from those two exercises is going to be pretty high. So it's going to be helpful from a loading perspective, but you may not be able to push yourself to the same load metric that you would have previously. Um, so, and it also depends on how many sets, as you know, for, you know, with my programming, I'm big on, um, having, you know, 
the the best exercises with a good quantity of, of overall set allotment. Whereas mm-hmm. some individuals like to have greater exercise volume. Um, so maybe they're only doing two or three sets per exercise so that they have a little bit of, of greater exercise selection. Um, I don't like, you know, having to get more stuff set up and, and have to put more plates on bars and take more off. Some individuals do like to have that kind of fresh sense and not having to spend too much time at one station, if you will. And so that would be a different way of programming. Um, but that, you know, having more than six or seven exercises is not normally in my realm of, of program design, but some individuals like to have a, a greater density of exercise selection. Okay, absolutely. So this, I may be getting a little bit too technical here. This is a more selfish question than anything okay. else. But when we talk about sequencing between shortened and lengthened movements, like deciding what goes where, like I'm going to put shortened here versus lengthened overload here. What's your thought process going into that? Does that question make sense? Like how are we determining? Yeah. Like- yeah. So this is, this is getting a little into the weeds, but I, I will say that. I, I love um, it though. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is going to be dependent on what the goal is of the phase. So for example, one thing that I'll do like in a a strength based phase is that I will go with um, my, my number one movement as my a or my first exercise. And then from that movement, I like to go with a shortened emphasis exercise. So for for example, um, just for the listeners to have kind of a tangible piece here is that uh, I'm going to come back to the RDL as being my, my first exercise. And then to get into the shortened range, you could do a 45 degree hip extension. Um, it's not the most fun from like, if you're doing reps of six to, you know, four to six repetitions, it's like, ah, I, you know, a hip thrust would be more fun here or a glute bridge would right. be more fun here from a poundage perspective. So then I like to go with a shortened emphasis within that. And then my third exercise within that neuro, uh, or strength-based work, this is going to be like, can I get more bang for my buck? How can I just finish off the tissue? So it may be more mid range emphasis because we've already really taxed the tissue through the length and and, uh, shortened range of the glute. Is there anything from a mid range standpoint that I would think to be beneficial here? Um, and that could be, we've talked about leg press being um, lengthened emphasis as a whole, which, which, it, which it is, but it also in that context where you've already taken it through a pretty beating from a shortened and lengthened perspective is going to serve more from a mid-range standpoint and kind of how okay. you would bias that would be more tempo related. So for example, if I was to put that as the third exercise, I would do like a three, zero, one, zero tempo with for the listeners, the first number is going to be the, the eccentric portion. The second number is going to be the pause in the isometric position where the, um, the insertion and the origin are going to be as far apart as possible. The third number is going to be the concentric portion of the exercise. And then the fourth number will be the shortened emphasis of the, the exercise. So whatever that positioning would be necessarily. And so you're following it in that cadence. So to make it more mid-range or, or less lengthened bias, you would just remove the pause from that lengthened position and just have a more consistent flow of movement relative to, to what you'd be doing there. And so in the strength-based context, that's how I would structure it. In a hypertrophy-based stimulus, at that point, I'm going to be focusing very heavily of like lengthened, lengthened, shortened probably as a, a breakdown because of how much volume you're getting of like, let's say we're doing four sets of eight or four sets of 10. If I was to put the shortened work in between there, that 
last lengthen exercise is probably not going to be great. You're just going to be like, uh, I am fatigue is too high. Whereas if we go with back to back, really beating you down with those two lengthened exercise, we've still got some gas in that shortened range more than, more than likely. Um, and it's a little bit easier on, I think headspace as well to like really get your two big punches out of the way and then get into a little bit of, of lesser intensity type work relative to neurological training or strength-based training. As you're aware, the whole thing is just very mentally taxing. Like it is the, those mm-hmm. phases are the ones that are like really beat you down from a mental headspace perspective. And you get a lot of systemic fatigue from those because of the mental fatigue aspect, not only the muscular fatigue that transpires as well. Okay. That, that makes complete sense. So would you often implement like a LinkedIn overload, shortened overload superset in a hypertrophy phase or no? In a hypertrophy phase, sure. I think that that drives up a lot of mechanical tension. If you go with more of a, like a shortened emphasis to um, a lengthened emphasis, that's going to be more of a, a, a sarcoplasmic benefit as a whole. So you're getting a lot of like cellular volumization within that type of approach necessarily. Whereas within the mechanical tension, you're going to be going from your, your strongest aspect of the tissue to your weakest being the strongest being the lengthened and your weakest being that shortened. Whereas if you go with the opposite, now you're going with your weakest uh, position of the tissue to a, a, a stronger position of that tissue. which is going to create a lot of cell swelling as a whole and um, you know to get you know crazy pumps that's a a great way of going about it but in terms of really eliciting a response of growth going with the lengthen to to shorten emphasis is going to be your best bet okay okay interesting that's uh, so insightful so to take it back then to this topic of frequency how when we're looking at like splitting up glute training is this something where like something i've seen in the past like hey every day like let's say you're training four or five days a week even on your upper body days with an implement like one to two glute bias movements as well to really like touch on frequency a bit more there and again this is probably something that depends but like when you're looking at frequency for someone whose major focus is on growing glutes what does that typically look like is it like hey we'll probably start with twice a week frequency maybe i want to start to eradicate it is per week frequency what are your thoughts on that yeah this is going to be super dependent on the individual and so i know that this has been kind of the response to almost all the questions but it's true in sense of Mm -hmm. where is the individual with their ability to recruit their their glute tissue so i may go with a greater frequency of less volume per session if we are really focusing on overall mechanics like if the person comes to me and is like look i want my glutes to grow but i have a really hard time with even creating tension and so maybe we have some issues within the musculature that's surrounding the pelvis maybe they have a very strong degree of like anterior pelvic tilt and we've got to get them out of that positioning to be able to train the glutes properly something along those lines there's many contextual things that could transpire. But let's say that we are like the individual has good recruitment. They just don't understand maybe uh, like the intensity component needs to be improved or they're going with excess volume as is now. And so more often than not, I'm going to have essentially it broken down to two days of that volume on the, on the bottom threshold being between 12 and 15 total sets uh, across all glute training with glute med and glute max and having the length and shortened emphasis kind of um, padded in there. 
And then I may take it up to like 20 to 22 on the very high end, depending on the individual. And that may be a more advanced individual that we're in like a caloric surplus and, and these different factors to allow for us to grow properly. So frequency wise, I would say probably twice a week is the most common. Some individuals will have like a three, uh, like three times a week because we're trying to have a, a greater abundance of just getting better at exercise, getting better at movement patterns. And we want to be in them as frequently as possible because we want to get more repetitions and train the mind within the um, connection more so and, and mechanics of it all and, and have that repetitions in place. So it may not be as much like sets per, you know, per uh, uh, session, but it will be the same, you know, spread out differently provided that they can recover from that. So three times a week, uh, glute training would not be something I would utilize with someone who's also in a caloric deficit. The likelihood right. that they're able to recover from that probably pretty slim. Now, is it possible if their proteins extremely high and, and maybe they've got incredible stress mitigation and, and sleep being in place and they're great within their fruit and, and vegetable consumption, all these different things of like really having incredible biofeedback, possibly, you know, possibly at that point, but for the, the general individual who's not going to have perfect sleep and is going to be uh, having some stress from work and maybe chasing around their kids, the likelihood that they're able to get three really good sessions in of quality work and, and grow from it, recover from it is pretty slim. So we have to be selective within what the person's you know, life looks like. I love that. Again, speaking to one of your original points about we have to make sure we can actually recover from this, not just, I want to grow, grow glutes, so I'm going to train them every single day. How important do you think it is? I think we have like two camps where we can either get so focused on like sensation, right? So on one end it's, Hey, I'm only going to do movements where I really feel my glutes working a lot. On the other end, you'll hear people say like, Hey, it really doesn't matter too much. If you feel your feel, whatever muscle working, as long as we're putting it in a position to experience a lot of tension. I don't really <laughs> Uh, I don't actually know how to turn that into a question very well. I guess yeah, I should, I, I should ask saying, how man. much you, how much do you think we should be focused on sensation here? Do you think it's something that goes too far or something we need to be more concerned with than most people are? Yeah, I think that, I think that people make a larger deal out of it than needs to be. I think that there's a time and a place to be able to really hone in and be like, okay, our major focus here is creating quality execution. And once we have mastered the movement from understanding uh, what's initiating uh, the movement from the eccentric to the concentric portion and creating quality tension in the isometric positions, once we've established that, then at that point, we need to start ramping up the, the intensity. We need to ramp up the, uh, the load that's being utilized, those different factors. So it's going to kind of work on a, a progressive state. And it depends. Like, and it's very difficult for some individuals, for instance, um, like I just had a, a client today where we're really reteaching the entire back squat. And it's very difficult for her to, to not 
go back to the old way of, of executing the movement and really loading up that bar because she's coming from a powerlifting background where it's like, I'm just trying to get this from point A to point B and stand up. Like I, I'm just trying to get three white lights. Whereas now she's focusing from a hypertrophy perspective and things are just different of how we go about exercise. And so it's, it's difficult to have that individual who's, who's seen herself squat you know, 300 plus pounds and, and now getting back to a point where it's like, all right, we've got 135 on the bar and we are honing in on really slow eccentrics, being able to hold and create tension in these more challenging positions, like the bottom of a squat and then getting out of that. And it's, that's hard. And, and it's a lot of your ego at being at a gym where they've seen you squat, you know, 315. And now you're in there with 135, just as if you were injured, right. you're not injured. You're just, you know, things are, are different of what your goals are. And so I think that leaving the ego at the door is something that everybody has to be reminded of, uh, myself included, even with me, uh, having been training individuals as well as training myself for so long, it's a component that's ever changing and you're always evolving and improving from an exercise execution standpoint. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So does that a- answer the yeah. question? Okay. No, it sounds like basically choose movements. We know, first of all, smart exercise selection is going to be a big piece of this. Um, execution is a priority and then not to like necessarily devalue like quote unquote feel in the muscle work, but it's probably not the most important thing to focus on. Is that right? It's not the, it's not the top priority, right? Like it's a, I think there, like I said, it's a time and a place. So you're kind of titrating it from, okay, I've got this execution down. I feel comfortable with being efficient and explosive out of these positions while also still feeling the muscle work. Let's get after some greater intensities and, and train harder and so on and so forth. Okay. Okay. So to kind of follow up on that, something you'll see a lot is, um, I don't know if you actually see this a lot, but something I saw a lot in the past was a lot of like focusing exclusively on high rep booty band work. For example, like yep. stepping side to side with the booty band around your knees. Do you think there's, because like you feel it a lot, do you think there's any value to doing high rep booty band work or no? I wouldn't say so because what we're finding from a, a research perspective, I think that, that Chris Beasley just posted about this. I don't know how long ago, but this is also one of his big, um, big things is that if you're not getting within five repetitions of, of failure, the work itself is, is just not necessary in terms of actually adding muscle tissue, actually adding enough stimulus to the tissue to be challenging enough to change or to adapt or to grow and densify or what have you. And so when we're looking at the, the booty band work, it's not enough resistance to create change. Now, are you expending calories? Sure. Like any movement is going to be expending calories. Are we creating dysfunction of the musculature around the pelvis potentially by doing hundreds of repetitions of, of abduction and not having the uh, same work going in the, uh, with adduction. So we're having potentially some dysfunction being created and muscle tissue that's being excessively tight and, and not allowing for, um, other tissue to work properly. So I think that the banded work, does it have value potentially in, in a context of, um, I don't know, maybe teaching some form of stability in, in a, a back squat. That's, I, I'm kind of, you know, uh, pulling at straws here. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but potentially, um, cause I, I want to say that there's some value, right? Because there's been so many individuals who use them and, and I don't want to believe that it's, it's a, you know, 
overarching scam that has come over the entire fitness industry and and you know people have made millions of dollars off of selling these and there's no value like I don't want to accept that to be the case you know but I don't I don't use it much within our our programming or you know clients utilizing them I don't have them use them at all okay very well put yeah so <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time man um, yeah one more question for you if you had to choose top five top movements for glutes, just mm. like, Hey, I need to grow some glutes. I can only, <laughs> this is honestly kind of a dumb question, five. but uh, no, 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 no. not a ton of context here, but if you had to choose a top five, what would you go with? Yeah. Um, I would focus very heavily on the Bulgarian split squat. I would get really, really good at hip hinging in that and, and creating a lot of tension in the glute. Um, I would get really good at the, the RDLs. So that's two there. Um, then from like a shortened emphasis perspective, get really good at the, the barbell glute bridge. Um, that would allow for you to create a lot of tension in that shortened range, as well as this is a great exercise to get you out of, if performed properly, to get you out of that anterior pelvic tilt position that so many people find themselves in because they're sitting at a desk, their abdomen's not very strong. And so by bracing the core in that exercise and really having to drive to the full hip extension and you know, complete glute flexion there, it really forces them to create stability because what's happening with that anterior pelvic tilt is the abdomen is not strong enough to pull the pelvis into a neutral position. And the lumbar is extremely too tight because you're sitting in this extended position all or the hip flex position all day. And so what's happening is that lumbar is extremely tight and this abdomen is not strong enough. So the glute bridge is a fantastic exercise to work through that. Um, if you line up well, potentially, I think that the back squat or like a leg press option works here too. So like the Bulgarian split squat kind of comes into those three scenarios. Like if your limb links work well for you, the back squat's awesome, but the Bulgarian split squat's kind of like the one that everyone's going to be able to do because it's going to fit your structure the best because you're setting it up that way. Um, and you're not having to load the spine necessarily. Um, the other exercises, I really, I love a step-up variation. Um, I think that it puts a lot of emphasis on the glutes. So like a reverse lunge or like a drop lunge, something along those lines. Yeah. I'm a big fan there. Um, I love the, the step-up in the context of it's really challenging. And if you have the execution correct, it really challenges the glutes uh, very well. And then to pick a fifth exercise, I love the 45 degree hip extension. I, I think that it's, it's a great movement, um, to get into the fully, uh, shortened position, but also you can do some intensifiers to make it more mid to kind of challenging to the lengthen, but more so mid to, to shortened range being a large emphasis. So that was my five, but I kind of gave you like eight or nine because I was, you know, myself and gave you <laughs> too many options because it depends. So, Yeah. Wait, I really appreciate it, man. This has yeah. been such a great interview. I feel like there are, we got pretty technical here, but I also feel like there were a lot of actual practical takeaways from that. So I know the listeners will take a ton of value from this. Again, I want to respect your time. So before I let you go, will you just tell everybody where they can find you, anything at all you'd like to plug? Absolutely. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Alex Bush, B-U-S-H underscore underscore. So that's me on Instagram. 
You can find me on TikTok. This is my new thing. I, I'm trying to get in with the cool kids and being on TikTok. Um, I think my I think it's at Alex Bush again underscore underscore there. Um, TikTok's new. What a what an interesting platform. Um, and then we have the physique development page on both there too. So Instagram and physique or Instagram and TikTok physique development on both of those. Physique development is on YouTube. So we've, we are very consistent from a YouTube perspective. You can just type in physique development on YouTube and we have lots and lots of education on there. We have the uh, physique development uh, podcast, which is also fantastic. It's the three owners, myself, Austin, and Sue. Um, on the podcast, we have podcasts released weekly there. Um, yeah, I think that that's the the general gist of things on that front. We have our physique development training club as well, which is just an app. If you guys were interested in in getting the training app of training that myself and, and Austin have have written specifically, um, that is is there for you um, as well. And yeah, I, we got a lot of stuff, but I think that that covers the the main stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Again, I can't recommend enough. All the listeners give Alex, Sue, Austin, the entire physique development team a follow. I know we've learned so much from you, our coaching team. I've worked with you. Appreciate that. Andrea's worked with Sue for what, over a year now. Yeah. I'm with the entire process of getting ready for a photo shoot, et cetera. So we've learned so much from you guys. We truly appreciate you. And thank you again for being here, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.